0: As we move into God's word. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are the sovereign God, that you are in control, that you are the God who is working in this world. Uh, I think it's very appropriate at this time as we think of a transition of presidential power uh, to acknowledge, Lord, that as believers in Jesus Christ, our hope is not ultimately in a person, a political party. Uh, but is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, Lord, that one day he will come back and rule, and his rule will be perfect. And we long for that day, Lord. I thank you for our former president, Barack Obama, Lord. I thank you for our current president, Donald Trump. Uh, We know, Lord, that you're the one who... Sets up and arranges things for your purposes, for your design. And we, as your Christians, your citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we want to be in partnership with what you are doing. So help us to do that well, Lord. Help us to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ While well, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, open your Bibles with me. We're looking at Romans chapter 12. If you do not have a copy of God's word of your own, you can grab the blue Bible in the chair in front of you and turn to page 947 and you will pick up with us in our text. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you weren't with us last week, we're going through a three-part vision series, Worship Transformation Mission. You can go online to uh, osterville.org, ostervillebaptist.org, look at the sermon series, and I would encourage you to listen to the sermon on worship. This next sermon will make less sense unless you've heard that sermon, so check that out. If you have an extra 30 minutes this week, it's a good way to put yourself to sleep or something like that. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. It's an amazing process to watch. Uh, The process of Something starting out one way. You can think of a tadpole or a caterpillar. It undergoes this transformative process, and it emerges out as something different. I used to love collecting tadpoles and caterpillars as a kid. I remember a couple lessons I learned along the way. For example, if you're raising a caterpillar and you put it in a jar, you have to poke holes in the lid. If you don't poke holes in the lid, the chrysalis never gives you a butterfly. I still haven't figured out why that is, uh, but I know that you need to. The other thing is that you don't want to make an animal emerge through metamorphosis too quickly, right? So if I take the chrysalis and I cut the butterfly out of the chrysalis, I don't get a beautiful butterfly, do I? Now, did you know that you're in this process too? The Greek word metamorpho means to be changed into another form. And so for the Christian, this change comes from within. We're made into something different than we were before. And just like metamorphosis with the animal, the Christian needs the right set of circumstances, the right environment to go through metamorphosis. So how does this occur? Well, it began if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior the day that you acknowledged him as your Savior. Ephesians talks about this process, Ephesians chapter 2 verse one. "You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, uh, in which you once walked. So before Christ and without Christ, you were walking in a spiritually powerless condition or state. You were dead in your sins. Now, you can imagine that if the Bible just ended right there, that we wouldn't have much reason to come together today. I would not imagine that anyone would be sitting in this room. In fact, we would be better off to go home, take a paint roller, roll it on the wall, and just watch paint dry, wouldn't we? But Ephesians 2, verse 4 continues. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You were dead. You were brought to life. You were formerly an enemy of God. Now you're brought into God's family. We are talking here about radical, radical change. J.D. Greer notes that many Christian people think of the gospel as the ABCs of Christianity. My little guy, Bear, he's two, has been working on his ABCs. He, He comes upstairs with a piece of paper and there's just gibberish scratch on it. And he says, Mommy, here's my ABCDs. And he lays it out in front of us. You know, the basics, the gospel's the entry point, some think. Once you get the gospel, then you move on to the meatier things, like looking at the newspaper and determining who's going to be the Antichrist, or doing a Greek study on the word chi, which is just the word and. And I'm being facetious there. Uh, Studying things like the prophets in the Old Testament. We think we move past the gospel. In fact, there's an acronym based off of the ABCs that goes something like this. A, admit your need of Christ's gift of forgiveness. B, Believe in his willingness to give it to you, and C, call on him to do it. So after you get this, so it goes. Then you move to the D through the Z of Christianity. But Tim Keller says that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A through Z. Every virtue of the Christian life grows out of a deeper experience of the transformation that the gospel brings. Spiritual growth doesn't happen by going beyond the gospel, getting quote-unquote deeper. It happens as we get deeper in the gospel, more fully understanding what God did in and through Christ in our lives. And I believe that this is the argument of the entire book of Romans, You gain a sense of this as you follow the big chunk movements of the book and Paul uses this transitional word, therefore, to take us along the journey. He begins in chapter 3, verse 20 and we call this the therefore of condemnation. The NIV translation captures it well. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. Paul is saying that you can try to work your way to God, you can try to Balance out the good with the bad, but no one will stand before God and be declared righteous. Chapter 5, verse 1 is the therefore of peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justification is the act where God imputes or he accredits to our account the righteous life of Jesus Christ and he accredits to Christ on the cross our own sinfulness. Therefore, since you have been justified, you have peace with God. Chapter 8, verse 1, the therefore of assurance. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that you can do to take away the work that God has done in Christ. Now that is assurance. Assurance. For 11 chapters, Paul is declaring how you and I can have a right relationship with God, how we can come back to that stance with God for which we were originally designed, the stance of worship, by placing our faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to the fourth, therefore. And that's our text this morning. Let's read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And perfect. This is the therefore of commitment. Because of all that God has done in Christ, therefore, offer him your life. This is how you worship God. And if you're willing to give yourself to this passage and to what Paul is saying here like you have never done before, then you will be radically transformed, you will be made different. As we think of this passage, I'd like to show you five ways that the worshiping life produced or that comes about through accepting the gospel transforms us, the way it changes us. And then as we conclude, we're going to briefly look at how the transformed community, the church of Jesus Christ, accelerates this growth process in our life. So let's look at the first way that we're transformed. We have transformed motivations. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What does he mean, the mercies of God? Well, just what we've been talking about, right? The entire book of Romans is about the mercies of God. It's interesting that there's not a single word about us doing anything for God until you get to the middle of the sixth chapter. So, for five and a half chapters, Paul cannot stop talking to us about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But isn't it so often that we get stuck on, and churches get stuck on, what we can do for God? But that's never how Paul writes. Paul's letters generally flow something like this. Here are all the things that God has done for you in Christ. Now. Don't you want to live for him? Transformed motivations. How do we become transformed people? Well, we don't become transformed people by mastering the 10 steps of following Jesus better. We grow passionate about God when we reflect on the 10 billion steps that he took towards us in Jesus Christ. The gospel message. I want to think about this in terms of an environment of a church. How does growth happen in a church? When you look at the epistles, Paul demonstrates through them that Christians grow in an environment, in an atmosphere of grace. A church that builds a culture of grace creates a safe, healthy environment for people to grow. That means that we're affirming one another, it's safe to take a risk. And we watch God do amazing things because when his gospel starts taking root in a healthy church, it just explodes the church. Bill Hole writes, In my travels, I have noticed how climate determines what thrives. Saudi Arabia was an environment where very little could naturally survive except for lizards and golf. Now, I've never played around a golf in my life, and I was just told in between the services that I should never start. But I want to learn. I think it kind of looks fun. He says, I lived across the street from a Saudi golf course for two days and didn't know that it was a golf course. He said the fairways were marked with white lines, the greens were rolled rolled sand, and the golfer would tee off on a patch of indoor-outdoor carpet that he bring along with him on the cart just doesn't work does it we're not talking about the right environment for golf to happen he said golf could exist in Saudi Arabia but not thrive in the same way transformation can survive in a legalistic and harsh climate but it will never thrive i don't know if you've ever been a part of a church that is legalistic But it just completely zaps and robs the joy of the Lord from the church experience. You see, when you feel the pressure to be perfect, you're no longer really looking at the gospel. Because the gospel is a message that tells us, I can't be perfect. I need God to transform me, to change me. Hole continues In what climate does transformation thrive? The answer is simple, a safe environment. Repentance and confession are linked to trust in others. Can I be real? Can I be vulnerable? And unless people are willing to open up, transformation will be largely absent, which explains the problem that many churches face today. I want you to hear how God treated us in Christ in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. It also means that as I preach the Word of God to you, I know that I can't rely on guilt. I was reading an author talking about how one of his favorite tools for some time was to compel people with uh, guilt. He would try to compel their generosity with guilt. He would say things like, How can you live in such abundance when so many are suffering in poverty? Do you realize that that money that you spent on that frappuccino would have fed someone for a day? Are you ready to face Jesus, having lived on so much when others have so little? Now, he's not necessarily saying anything false there, but you know what he discovered about guilt? It never works. We find all kinds of of mechanisms to get past guilt, don't we? I mean, when the offering plate's passing by, we look to our right and our left and we see that Chip Lorig didn't put a check into the offering plate, and we walk away feeling a little bit better about ourselves. Or we rationalize. Guilt does not produce transformation. In fact, when you look at Paul and the way that he would compel the churches to be generous, he would never rely on guilt. He always relied on grace. 2 Corinthians 8-9 For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. It is impossible to be exposed to the gospel and believe in it and to not become like the gospel. Experiencing grace transforms us to be the people that God wants us to be. Now I'd like to look at another implication, transformed audience. Transformed in who we view to be our audience. So remember, transformation is metamorphosis. It's a change that comes from within. You don't produce a butterfly fly by pinning wings onto a worm. It doesn't work like that. We know that the spiritual transformation that comes, comes to us by the Holy Spirit of God. But there's another type of change that Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 12. It is a change that does not come from the Holy Spirit. It is a change that comes by uh, pressure from without, that compels us to try to conform to what everyone else looks like. Warren Wiersbe writes, God wants to transform us. He wants to work through us to transform the people and the circumstances that make up our lives. Every Christian is either a conformer or a transformer. Our lives are being changed either by pressure from without conforming or by power from within transforming. And the difference, what is that? Week number one, worship. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase, Do not become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. I think of writer Osgenis, prolific. He has famously and ardently defended the gospel. And he writes about why worship changes how we view who we're performing for and who we're seeking to please. He said it's easy to buck a crowd, not too hard to march to a different drumbeat, but it is truly difficult, perhaps impossible, to march only to your own drumbeat. Most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others. The audience of one. You see, it is all too common today to be other-directed which means that you look to your right and your left to have your peers be your real guide in life. We're not so much inner-directed. So we're asking questions, maybe even impulsively as we're making a decision like this. Who is doing this? Or how many people are doing this? Instead of the better question, is this right? Is this what God would have me do? And when you think of this at the church level, the church is not called to be a thermometer. We're not called to record the ideas of the popular culture. We're called to be a thermostat, which transforms the culture through our work. So how do we grow into a people that uh, transform the culture? The ultimate priority, worship. In worship... We care less about the lesser audience. I think of uh, an interaction that Winston Churchill had. He was asked uh, how he felt about a vicious attack from one of the members of Parliament, and he said this. If I respected him, I would care about his opinion. But I don't, so I don't. Os Guinness says, I have only one audience, before you, I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, nothing to lose. How do you live before the audience of one? Well, Paul says in this text that you offer God three things you offer God your life, you offer Him your logic, you offer God your desires. Let's look at life, the transformed living. Peterson, again, His paraphrase. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. So when you're asking that question to yourself, how can I live the will of God? What does God want me to do? The answer Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. The NLT translation says, this is truly the way to worship him. God wants your everyday moments. He wants your moments in the office. He wants your moments when you're in the business meeting. He wants your moments when you're driving from one job location to another. He wants your moments when you're baking. He wants your moments when you're reading your kids goodnight stories. He wants your moments when you're choosing what you will use to entertain yourself. He wants each and every moment, as the classic hymn says Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. So that means then that there is a word in the English language that will help you to be transformed in Christ if you say it regularly to God and you mean it. It's a very simple word. It's a word that we can throw out very flippantly, but it's also a word that when we say it with the power intended behind it, it will radically change your life. The word's yes. Do you want to worship God? Say yes to Him. I want to put up this cycle that I showed you last week worship, transformation, mission. Yes is the word that makes this cycle move freely. God calls you to do something, He gives you a command from the Bible. You say, Yes, Lord. God asks you to reach the neighbor down the street and you just simply say, Yes, Lord, how would you like me to do that? God is asking you to go and and forgive someone or to ask forgiveness because you have offended them. Yes, Lord. Every time I say no, this cycle stops working. Because if I say no to God, then I'm no longer offering God my life, which means I am no longer worshiping him. And if I'm not worshiping God, I'm not experiencing his transformative presence, which leaves me different when I go forth. And if I'm not being transformed, then I'm not usable by God to do his mission. Yes is the only way that the cycle moves forward. So, Here's the hard question. What's he asking you to say yes to? And are you saying it? Transformed logic. Paul says that the transformation that we so desperately need happens by the renewal of the mind. So, in other words, God needs to change the way we think. He needs to change or alter how we view the world. He needs us to come full around 180 degrees and think differently than the world does. You know, today it is not popular to be determined in your mind to say that this is right and this is wrong. We like to, many people like to sit on the fence and not come down on one side or the other. And the popular slogan is tolerance. There's one thing with tolerance. Everything is tolerated except for saying that something shouldn't be tolerated. It is the intolerance of tolerance. Here's the thing, the problem with having such an open mind. John Stott said it best. It exposes us to the danger of having our minds so open that our brains fall out. Paul says... Don't allow yourself to be conformed by the value system of the world. I want you to just, for a moment, think with me about the big questions that we're asking all the time. I want you to think about the world's logic. I want you to think about biblical truth. And I want you to see just how incompatible the two are. Think about the purpose of life. The goal and the meaning of life. Strikingly different. How to determine greatness. Greatness. How to respond to evil in the world. What about ambition and success? What defines a person being successful? What about honesty? Finances? Sexual relationships? Religion? Or even something a little closer to home? Failure. God uses failure for his glory. I love what Chuck Swindoll says, God often sees failure as a stepping stone for growth. So that failure in the Christian life is not a sin and it's not something to be avoided. It's something to offer up to God so that he can transform that experience. Paul is saying, stop aping the world. Don't stand and look at what they're doing and then wave your arms in the same way next to them. Instead, be determined to think biblically and then to act accordingly to what the Scriptures say. This means filtering life through the lens of the Scriptures. It means making your decision based upon scriptural guidelines so that if we're walking in the Word, then we're no longer feeling stuck by the question, what does God want me to do with my life? It's right here. It's spelled out. It's God's revelation from start to finish. God is writing about What he wants you to do with your life. So, another shameless plug for those Bible reading plans. Make sure you pick one up. (laughs) Make sure you grab yourself a really good study Bible so that you understand what you're reading and just watch as God changes your mind how it will change your life. Transform desires. So let's go back and kind of capture the flow of the logic that Paul's writing here. If you've been personally affected by the gospel, then offer God your life. Offer him each day. Offer him the various components of your life. Don't reserve one aspect of your life for yourself. Let him have it all. Offer God your mind. Let your mind be captured by God's wisdom and not the world's. And then he concludes when you do this, you will discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that word discern, the sense of the word is to approve, to think well of something. Paul is saying that when you do the will of God, you actually discover how marvelous it is. I think of all those people that are walking around us who think that doing the will of God is not acceptable, is not good, is not perfect. They think to themselves, boy, I know that internally there's something that's telling me that I should follow God, but if I do that, I mean, I am just headed straight for Dolesville. And they think that if you get religious, you wreck your life, you're no longer going to have a scrap of any fun. You'll walk around with your head down, looking at the sand because you feel the the pressure and the guilt of walking with God. God knows that's a lie. Any of you who have walked with Christ for some time now, you know that's a lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. Doing God's will is the most exciting, demanding, fulfilling, thrilling experience that you can ever discover. In fact, as you do God's will, as you give him your life, as you give him your mind, he says, look, I'll prove it to you. And not only does he prove it to you, but he proves it to others. See, when they see you living the transformed life, then they look out and they say, wow, that, that person right there, they've discovered the secret of life and of enjoyment and of fulfillment and, and answering that deeper question that I'm asking myself when I feel empty and lonely on the inside. You See, we're going to see next week that God uses people like you right here in your everyday life to change the world. That's always been God's plan So as we gather together of a church, we gather together on Sundays to celebrate the gospel so that we are filled up. Our cups are filled by God. And then we go home and in our individual worship, we are filled up. Our cups are filled up by God. And then when we come back together in worship, it's like an explosion of worship because we've been worshiping God individually and we come together and worship God. And as he fills up that cup, he fills it with love for your neighbor. And God uses you. He uses you in your neighborhood. He uses you when you're out clamming. He uses you when you're playing golf. He uses you at the office. He uses you as your parenting. He uses you to reach the world. But I'm stealing next week's thunder. So let's stop there and let's move on to transformed community. Wearsby, in his book, Real Worship, It is not enough that I am transformed by worship. I must also help transform others, and I should allow others to be used by God to transform me. One of the tests of the spiritual gathering is whether we leave it a better person than when we entered it. So when you're looking at the book of Ephesians, Paul's argument through the book is that the church is God's manifold wisdom on display. It's the gathering that God uses to accelerate metamorphosis or transformation in our lives. You can pursue transformation on your own, but you will be a wimpy Christian. You will be pathetic, maybe even. But as we come together... And we get that gracious, loving environment, the speaking the truth and love, the gospel of grace, environment of the church. God accelerates growth. Don't filter it through the the, the grid of the church that you were at that wasn't healthy filter it through the grid of what could be and should be as people are using their gifts, as leadership is healthy. And I want you to see this cycle again, worship transformation mission. Notice that individually any one of us could go through this cycle. And I hope you are. But as we go through this cycle together as a corporate body, God exponentially increases the growth and the impact of what we can be. And that's an amazing thing. The Spirit of God produces a profound work, and he's been doing it for 2,000 years now. So how do we do this? Well, I've put in your bulletin a little pamphlet here called Every Member. Every Member is a spiritual growth, growth plan. We called it last year church at the center, but I think Every Member better captures the idea of where I'm heading with this As individuals, we take personal ownership to do these things so that God accelerates the growth of the church as we do them together. Every member growing together. It is built upon five commitments. The first commitment is every Sunday. Now, I don't want to expound on each one of these commitments, but I do want to say something here. Your presence says a lot to people. It tells people that God is important to you. It tells them that they're important to you. It also tells them that you think that their presence in your life is important. I call this the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence is a powerful thing. God has greatly shaped my life by the ministry of presence. I remember, and I will never forget, my dear brother Dick's service. How God used Dick's service to do the ministry of presence in my life. It was sometime just before he went home to be with the Lord that I remember seeing him sitting there in the back corner of the church. He had fought to get here. As he was dying of cancer, he would repeatedly say in the hospital to me, Rob, I just want to be in church one more time. I want to be with the people of God. And he did. He fought hard, and he made it to the back corner of church. And I was built up as I preached the word, as I sang songs from the start to the finish of the service, as that man wept because he was here with the local gathering of people. He got it. He understood just how precious the church of Jesus Christ is. Another commitment is pray 365. Not so much that I'm saying pray at home, though I hope you are individually, but pray 365 that God would use the church to reach this area. Bible plus one is the commitment of recognizing that we all have busy lives, but if we commit to a discipleship program and serving, that would be a healthy balance to our life. Give 10, partnering your resources to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ reach to being available in your sphere of influence this year to reach 2 people. You see, if we commit ourselves to these things, I am convinced, I promise you I'm convinced that we will be the worshiping, transformational, missional church that God's called us to be. Let's pray.